Luke chapter 12. We're going to focus specifically on verses 49 through 59 this morning. You know, people desperately want to believe that man is basically good. In fact, if you went out and and did a poll and you asked people, most people would say that man is basically good. They believe and want to believe that their good will somehow outweigh their bad. If put in scales in front of God, their good would outweigh their bad. The problem is what they don't realize that without Christ, all their good actually belongs on the bad side of the scale. People so badly want to believe that man is good, that there are more good people in the world than bad people in the world, that when a group of people in our society engage in an activity that's historically been considered immoral, our society will eventually morph to embrace that activity. They will change their view to embrace that as being good. And they'll be accepting and even celebrating of what they had previously seen as an abhorrent behavior. In just a short period of time, relatively speaking, and and there's some of us in this room that have watched it in the last 30, 40 years, where our society had held certain things to be wrong and now not only accepts but celebrates them. Uh, Things such as abortion or unmarried people living together, homosexuality or recreational drug use. These were considered abominations by the overwhelming majority just a few decades ago. But the American mindset has shifted so much because we want to say everybody's a good person. So if a significant portion of the population want to engage in some behavior, we don't want to say, well, they're wicked. We want to say, well, they're good too. Continuing the desire to see man as basically good, we've also developed a blame-shifting society. Somebody does something dumb and uh, or sinful or wrong, the first gut reaction seems to be, there must be a reason. Since people are basically good, there must be a reason they did something bad. And they look for the excuse to justify the horrific act of another person. The thought is there... There must be some cause to make an otherwise good person do something bad. The excuses run their range. They run their range from the person grow, grew up poor and disadvantaged, that's why they did it, to they grew up rich and too affluent, and that's why they did it. Some of you remember some years ago when a young teenager took his parents' car and got drunk and drove uh, and ran into some people and killed them and was tried and released, found not guilty because he suffered from affluenza. He was too rich to know right from wrong. We've had people in our society who have been excused because they didn't have enough toys growing up and excused because they had too many Twinkies growing up. Do you remember the Twinkie defense? The man who killed a person and got away with it because he ate too many Twinkies. That's the society we live in. Because we want desperately as a society want to believe that people are basically good. And if they do something wicked and evil, there must be some reason. And they're afraid to take a good, honest look at themselves. They don't want to look at the heart of man because they won't like what they see if they really do it. 
In fact, recently we've been told when a group of people gather together and they do violent things and they destroy property and they threaten lives and they define authority, that we just need to understand them. They're obviously acting out because they're being misunderstood or mistreated. We need to listen to them and understand and then augment our laws in order to make them feel more comfortable. The problem with assuming that man is basically good has eternal consequences. When man doesn't see his own sinful conditions, he will never see a need for a Savior. He'll never see the need to confess and repent and seek forgiveness because he doesn't think he needs it. He doesn't think he's done enough wrong. He doesn't seek forgiveness of sin because he doesn't see what he does as sin. Or at least serious enough. His concept of God, if he thinks about God at all, is warped. He thinks that God is there to make his life better. By meeting his needs and meeting his desires. Other than that, God really serves no purpose in this person's life. Others are angry and bitter at God and they blame Him for the violence and the suffering in this world and say things along the lines of, if since man is basically good, they're only doing violent things because God hasn't given them all that they need. If God would just give everybody all that they need or all that they want, then there wouldn't be violence and suffering. Rather than, again, actually seeking the true problem of the world, which is our inherent sinfulness, they want to see that the problem is inequity. If God supplied equally for everyone and everybody accepted everything from everyone, then there'd be peace on earth. This thought that man is basically good impacts the way people think of Christ, if they think of Him at all. They intend to impose upon Christ what they want Him to be. They think, they choose to think of Jesus as nothing more than an example of how to live. They have expectations of Jesus that they, they lay on Him, and if He doesn't meet those expectations, they're upset. Well, we get that, right? We're guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. I know I've put expectations on people that they didn't fulfill and then they, then I got upset. And I've had it the other way around where there's been expectations on me and I didn't fulfill the person's expectations so they're upset with me. Well, that's what people are doing with Christ. They, they have expectations they want Him to fulfill, but they're not interested in fulfilling His expectations. They think of Jesus as kind and meek and a mild teacher who did good and cared for the underdog and the outcasts. They see Him more as an example to emulate than they do a sovereign Lord to obey. This was a problem in Christ's day. While many thought that He was the Messiah, their idea of the Messiah was a political and military leader. Much like Gideon. They thought Jesus is the Messiah and we'll, we'll stand behind Him and we'll support Him as the Messiah as long as He helps us throw off a Roman oppression and, and we can be a nation again and He can even be the leader of the nation. 
Most people didn't consider the reality that Jesus came to free them from the greatest oppression, and that was slavery to sin. So when Jesus didn't meet their expectations as a military and political leader, they hated him and they ridiculed him and ultimately they killed him. The lesson the Jews of Jesus' day needed to learn and the lesson mankind needs to learn today is Jesus did not come to meet our expectation, but we must meet his. For that reason, Jesus clarifies the purpose of his coming along with the problem of people. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 49, reading through the end of the chapter. Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a rain sh- or shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be hot today, and it turns out to be that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. So we start start with the purpose of Jesus. Now the New Testament lists a number of things that Jesus said as to his purpose for coming. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Everything Jesus did, everything that he taught, everything that came out of his mouth perfectly fulfilled the law and the prophets. He did this to appease God's law, to fulfill that so that he could be the proper sacrifice and to do the will of his Father. In fact, that's another purpose that he came. According to John 6, 38, he came to do the will of his Father. He said, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Everything that Jesus did was fulfilling God's will. He didn't come to do his own thing. He came to do what his Father asked him to do and commanded him to do. He came as light to the world. In John 12, 46, he said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. There's an implication in there, and that is we're in a dark world. We're in a dark world because of the sinfulness of men, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And Jesus came to shine in the midst of that darkness to point people to God, to have a relationship with him. He came to testify to the truth. John eighteen thirty seven. 
He said, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. As today, just in Jesus' day, people are believing the lie. In Jesus' day, they were believing the lie that it, just because they were Jews, they were good to go. They were, that was fine. That's all they needed. If they were circumcised male Jews, then they made their way into heaven already. It was a done deal. And that was a lie. They still needed the righteousness of Christ. Jesus came to tell the world the truth. Multiple times he would say throughout his ministry, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he would give another bit of truth. You've been believing this lie. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. He came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 5.32, he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That was the purpose of his coming, was to save lost people. To call unrighteous people to repentance. The problem was... The majority of the audience he was speaking to didn't see themselves as the unrighteous. They saw they didn't see themselves as sinners. They saw themselves as righteous. And then in John 10.10, 10, he said, I came to give life. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then here in Luke 12.49, he said, I have come to cast fire on the earth. A fire in the Bible is used in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's just fire. It's used for heat or cooking. Sometimes it's the fire that's used to consume the sacrifices. Sometimes fire is used metaphorically, which is the case here. And there's two different ways, typically, that fire is used metaphorically. One is to be metaphor for uh, purification, like you, you, you put fire to gold, so all the impurities will rise to the top and you can... Scrape it off and have pure gold, pure silver. But the other, and probably the majority of the way it's used metaphorically, is to speak of judgment. Psalm 21, verses 8 and 9, the psalmist writes, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You will make them a, as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16 said, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27 says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. The context of Luke chapter 12 and parallel passages to it imply judgment. Listen to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and following. Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. John 9, 38, Jesus said, 
For the judge, for judgment I came into this world. For those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. There's judgment coming. When Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, he's talking about this fire of judgment. Like today, the people in Christ's time are relying on their self-righteousness. Their heritage to secure their standing before God. So I'm a good person. I'm a good Jew. Therefore, I must be allowed into heaven. But they didn't see a need to ever be covered in Christ's righteousness. They didn't see a need for a substitute. They didn't see a need for atonement because they didn't see themselves as sinners. In fact, some would stand in the public square and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other, other people, other men. Sinners. Though they recognized that Jesus did the miraculous, and they heard Him teach in a way that no one had ever taught before, they never saw Him as a Savior that they desperately needed. Oh, He's a miracle worker. He's... He's a healer. He's a provider. And those things are all great. And He's welcome to be our Messiah and our King and lead us against Rome. But a Savior? No. We don't need a Savior. Why would a person reject the free gift of God? The free gift of salvation? It seems odd, doesn't it? Why would a person reject? Refuse that. It's free. It's a gift. It's salvation. I don't know if any of you have ever been part of like a chamber of commerce or to a chamber of commerce event where people have booths set up. Typically at those booths, there's something free. There's a bowl of mints. There's a pen. There's a magnet. There's something that's free. And people will go from booth to booth just to get the free stuff. When I was pastoring in Palm Springs, I was a member of the Chamber of Commerce and, and we had an event, so I set up a booth and I had a banner up and I, I had, uh, um, some tracks and some different paraphernalia and I had a quiz. If they could answer three of the five questions, they got a prize and I had some free pens and things like that. And, and I have a line of people coming up to get the free pen. If people will line up for a free pen, why would they reject the free gift of salvation? It seems odd to us. It doesn't make any sense. So why is it? And we all know people that have done that. Many, some of them have rejected the gospel multiple times. Well, I think many simply can't admit that they're sinners. They won't admit that they're a sinner in need of saving. So they disagree with God's assessment of them that they are wicked sinners in need of God's grace. They think I'm fine. In the scale of everything, my good will outweigh my bad, they believe. They're convinced that they're good enough to please God. If I just get to heaven, when I walk in, God will recognize right away that I'm not a bad person. Others simply are unwilling to surrender to the will of the Lordship of Christ. Oh, if I could have Him as Savior and then, and, and then He just doesn't 
get involved in any other area of my life and he minds his own business, that's fine. But if he wants to be Lord, no, no, no. I'm Lord of my life. I'm the leader of my own life. Any person who rejects God's free gift of salvation boils down to self-will versus God's will. They're saying, I'm going to do it my own, be it pride, self-righteous, self-determination. The attitude is, I don't need God, I am fine on my own. I don't need Him to interfere in my life. The creatures have come to believe that they don't need the Creator. The creatures have come to believe that the Creator has no right to tell them how to live. This is the same sin found in Satan. When he wanted to assert his independence from God. I don't need him to be my God. I will be his instead. Just as God judged Satan and the angels that followed him, God will judge those who refuse to surrender to Christ as Lord. John the Baptist said of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, John says, as for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor to gather his wheat to his barn and listen to this, to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The chaff are those who are unsaved, those who don't think they need Christ. The wheat are those who have received Christ. They're gathered into the barn. The chaff are thrown into the fire. Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And then he said, and how I wish it were already kindled. Jesus is saying, I wish the events were already underway. I wish we could fast forward to the end when the purification of the world is finally completed. The reason he wanted it to already be kindled is in verse 50. He had to undergo a baptism. He said, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. The word baptism or baptismo means to immerse. That's one of the reasons we immerse in the water because that's what the word means. But it's used metaphorically in the Bible to speak of being immersed into something, covered by something. For instance, Acts 1.5 says, we are baptized with the Spirit. That is, we are immersed in the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.3, we are baptized into the death of Christ. We're completely covered by the death of Christ. Speaking of the Jews, in 1 Corinthians 10.2 said, we are baptized into Moses. And that was in reference to the crossing through the Red Sea as they were all uh, under that law of Moses and under the care of the, cr- the cloud and the pillar of fire. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized into one body. Speaking of the church, we are all immersed into this thing called the church. But here in Luke Luke 12, Jesus is speaking of his crucifixion and all that is associated with it. He's used this metaphor before. When James and John came to Jesus and said, hey, we want to know if one of us could sit on your right hand and one on the left in the kingdom. That is, if we can be second and third in command in the kingdom. In Mark 10, 38, Jesus said, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink and or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? 
Jesus said, are you, real, are you able to undergo everything that I'm going to undergo? You can experience the crucifixion like I can experience it? As Jesus speaks of the fire of judgment that's coming, he contemplates the event that will set that in motion. At the time Jesus says this, the, the baptism, the crucifixion, obviously still in the future, and that's what's going to launch this fire that he's going to cast onto the earth. So the fire is still future until the crucifixion, and that's when it all starts to come together. As he contemplates what lies ahead, he's distressed. He's distressed as he thinks about the fact that he is going to be immersed into the Father's divine judgment for sin. Jesus becomes sin for us. The baptism that Jesus would undergo was not simply a humiliating, painful death, though that would be part of it. That would actually have been the easiest part of it. The more difficult part is Jesus becomes sin for us. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All us like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, that's God, made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became sin. He became guilty of your sin and my sin. God looked at Him and said, that's sin. All the sin falls on Him. The one who never knew any sin, the one who was perfect. Not only that, He became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Christ, who was sinless, experienced the consequence of human sin. He was, for a time, separated from His Father. And not only that, He became the object of His Father's wrath. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death. As sinners, we are cursed by God. Cursed to die, cursed to suffer God's wrath, cursed to be separated from God for eternity. And Jesus Christ took that curse upon Himself. And He died. And He suffered God's wrath. And He was separated from His Father. And fortunately, He doesn't have to spend eternity in hell for us. The thought of what he is going to go, the baptism he has to undergo for sinners causes him distress. He says in verse 50, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. We remember Jesus in the garden. We remember as he collapses in the garden as he walked away from the disciples, and he fell to the ground and he sweat as it, as it were, 
great drops of blood. But that wasn't the first time he felt that distress. He felt that all the time. Perhaps every time somebody rejected him, he would think about the cross and what it meant to become sin for them. Perhaps every time somebody accepted him, believed in him, he remembered the cross and what he must do in order to redeem that person. The reality of his purpose was on his heart and his mind long before the night of his crucifixion. The distress of becoming sin for us, becoming a curse for us, was always on his mind. The purpose of Jesus was to become sin for those whom the Father had given to him and to cast fire on the earth by forcing people to choose to suffer the judgment of God or to receive Christ. This leads to the third inevitable purpose, and that is to cause division. Verse 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Now it's a common assumption, most people have, that know anything about the Bible, anything about Christ, that he came to be, bring peace on the earth. And there's good reason. Isaiah 6, or Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, prophesying about Christ said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, or I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the, even in the announcement of the birth of Jesus, the angel said in Luke 2, 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19, 42. And he said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Make no mistake, Jesus will usher in peace. He will bring peace to this earth when he comes the next time. When he comes and he destroys all of his enemies and he rules and reigns and set up his kingdom over the entire earth, then there will be peace. But until that time, even the mention of his name can bring division. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are still places in the, in our earth today, in our world today, where mentioning Jesus Christ can get you thrown in prison or even killed. Places like Syria, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, North Korea. In fact, today, today's date is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Christians. Because Christians are still being killed and being imprisoned all over the world. But closer to home, families and friendships have been severed because of commitment to Christ. 
Even among those who claim to be Christians, there's divisions. I can't tell you the number of families I've spoken to in the last almost 40 years that have been divided because of Christ. Where parents are committed to Christ, but their children grow up and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or children who come to Christ and their parents aren't saved and they want to tell their parents about Christ and there's a division there. And angry words are said, don't, don't tell me what you believe. You're, that's not welcome here. We don't want you. We don't want to hear it anymore. Those of us who trust Christ are naturally concerned for our family and friends who don't know Christ. And we want to tell them about the free gift of salvation and let them know that they can have eternal life. And they're offended when we mention Christ and they're offended because they would have to admit that they're sinners. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to see themselves as sinners. They want to believe that they're okay. They want to believe that they're basically good. And they're offended at the suggestion that they're a sinner who needs Christ. They, the one who doesn't know Christ feels judged by the Christian who says, you need Christ. For the longest time, I was the black sheep of my family. Even among those who called themselves Christians because of the things that they engaged in on a regular basis, I didn't do. And it's not like I wagged my finger at them or, or scowled at them when we'd have family gatherings. Well, they were all getting drunk and I wasn't drinking. It was just the fact that I wasn't doing what they were doing. They found offensive. And eventually we stopped getting invited to family gatherings, which was fine with us. Fortunately, most of my family now has come to Christ and we can fellowship on a different level. And that's great, though there are still some that just our very lifestyle is offensive. I don't even have to wear a fish on my t-shirt. I just have to show up. Through the years, I've seen parents at odds with their children, children at odds with their parents, husbands at odds with their wives, and wives at odds with their husbands, and virtually other every other relationship be severed because of the gospel. Sometimes it's because the Christian's annoying and offensive and pushy. But sometimes it's just the mention of Christ. Those of us who know Christ want others to know Him. We want them to know His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. Even though we have family members that are offended, we still want them to be saved. And we still know the only way of salvation is Jesus Christ. But they're offended when we say that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. And unless you come to the Father through Him, you can't come. Because they don't want to believe that. They want to believe, I can get there on my own. I can do it myself. I don't need forgiveness. When it comes to Christ, people are forced to make a decision. They must be for Him or they're against Him. There's no other option. We must stop, others must stop wanting Jesus to adapt to their way of thinking, conform to their desires, and we must conform to His. 
We must adapt to Him. Jesus then turns His attention from the disciples whom He's been speaking to, to the crowd. This large crowd that's been gathered, most of whom do not believe, and Jesus addresses to them the problem with people. The problem of people. And the first problem is they fail to analyze the times. They fail to analyze the times. Jesus speaks to the crowd and he's using two weather-related analogies to point out the fact that they're missing the most important signs. Verse 54 says that he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it turns out. West of Israel was the Mediterranean Sea. From many of the mountains in Israel, you can look west and see the Mediterranean Sea. And that's where the clouds would form. They would, the evaporation over the sea would take place. A cloud would fill with water, move over to the land and dump the water. In fact, when Elijah was a prophet, he prayed that, that it wouldn't rain until he asked God to make it rain again. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. And then Elijah was up on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and he defeated them, had them all killed. And then it was time to bring the rain back. So he prayed for rain and he asked his servant to go look toward the sea, tell him what he saw. He came back and said, I don't see anything. Six times the servant came back and said, I don't see anything. The seventh time, Elijah told him to go look and see what you see. He came back and in 1 Kings 18, 44, he said, Behold, a, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. Elijah said to him, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot, go down, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Hey, I just see a hand, I just see a cloud the size of a hand. And Elijah says, I know that's, that's going to be a big storm coming up. It's going to grow. See this cloud coming. Verse 55 is another weather-related analogy. He said, when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be hot today. And it turns out that way. The Sahara Desert was south of Israel. So when the wind blows from the south, it blows all that heat off the Sahara Desert right into Israel. Well, it comes from the south, it's going to be hot. You know, living in Southern California, if the wind was coming from the west, you knew it was going to be cool because it was blowing off the ocean. And it came from the east, it wasn't good. They're called Santa Ana winds. They're terrible. They come through the Central Valley and then across the Mojave Desert and shoot down the San Gabriel Mountains and across the L.A. Basin and it heats it up tremendously and it dries out everything. And the only people in all of Southern California that like Santa Ana winds are firemen because it's going to be a bad brush fire season and they're going to get a lot of overtime. Other time, otherwise it's miserable. Now, Jesus isn't being critical of the fact that these people can forecast the weather based on the direction of the wind or what they see forming over the ocean. That all is fine. What he's saying is you're completely missing the forecast of eternal judgment. Verse 56, you hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? The question is, how is it that you can see the signs of the weather and you can't see the signs that are right in front of you. Specifically, the Son of God has been here telling you truth. Jesus had spoke to them in a way no one had ever spoke. He did things that no one could ever do. All confirming that He was the Messiah. 
Even when they asked him for more signs, he said, I'm not going to give you any more signs. You've already had enough. When Jesus was preparing the disciples for his return to heaven in John 14, Philip said to him, show us the Father, it's enough for us. And Jesus responded and said, have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus is saying, Philip, I have done plenty of things. There's plenty of signs that if you're reading them correctly, you will recognize that I am God in the flesh. How do you see these other signs? Live your life according to the way the wind blows but you can't see what's been right in front of your face all this time. They failed to read the signs. The signs that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. People still don't analyze the times, do they? If people could analyze the times that they would just be honest. They would not be saying there is no God. They would be saying we need God. If people were just honest with what's going on in the world and look and see how far this world is, has gone from including God to excluding God, they would recognize that it's becoming more and more evil. They would see that this world has excluded God because man believes that he knows best. People fail to analyze the time. The wickedness that's in this world. And it's getting worse and worse. It's not getting better. Not only do people not analyze the time, they fail to judge what is right. Verse 57, and why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? Why is it that mankind refuses to examine all of the evidence that God has provided? If man was just honest with himself, he would admit that he's a sinner. Every person in the quietness of their own heart, in the darkness of their room, when no one else is around, knows perfectly well that he or she is a sinner. But when they get out in public, they can't admit that. When they get around their families and friends, they won't admit that that they're a sinner. But in their heart, they know. And they know that God has a right to judge them. Then Jesus says in verses 58 and 59, almost seems out of place here. He says, for a while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make every effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you that you will not get out of there until you've paid the very last cent. If you're not careful, you read that and go, okay, I'm not sure what that has to do with the rest of this context. Maybe Jesus is just speaking to a bunch of criminals that need to get their act right. But when we recognize that it fits perfectly in the context and what Jesus is saying here is sort of a parable, 
of getting people to understand that they are going to go before the judge one day and that judge is going to find them guilty one day and that judge is going to cast them into prison one day and if they have any intelligence at all, they'll get it right before they get to the judge. And he's speaking to mankind's relationship with God. All of us are going to appear before God, the judge. And if we don't settle up accounts with him beforehand... We're going to be cast into prison. That's hell. Until we paid the last cent. And for those humans, that will be eternity. So he's saying, get your relationship right before you get to the courthouse. Because once you get into the courtroom, it's too late. You can't make amends anymore. You can't settle out of court anymore. So you get it right beforehand. Do this before it's too late. The day's coming for every single one of us when it's going to be too late. The guilty sinner is going to be brought before God and then it'll be too late. And then there's no possibility of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. The only thing that person will hear was depart from me, you who work iniquity, for I never knew you. Make every effort to settle accounts before the time comes. Recognize your guilt before God. Recognize your need for God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Cry out to Him. Confess Jesus as Lord. Seek His salvation. It's only available through Him. Listen, if you don't know Christ, you are not good enough to appease God. You're a sinner. In need of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, like all of us. And until you recognize that and call out to Him to save your soul, you are an enemy of the judge. And the day's coming when you'll appear before Him and it'll be too late. Get it right now. This is a message the entire world needs to hear. We live in a world where people don't want to recognize that they're sinners. And because they won't recognize they're a sinner, they don't see the need for Christ. And because they don't see the need for Christ, they won't receive Him. And they're all guilty. And even though it causes division... We need to be brave and take the risk and tell people about Christ. Because that's what they need to hear. We need to help them to stop hoping that Christ will meet their expectations. Help them see they must meet His expectations. And His expectation is everybody comes to repentance. Confessing Him as Lord. This is the world we live in. This is a world that desperately needs Christ. Let's pray. Let's be a people who are praying for the lost. Let's be a people who are praying that God will use us to share the gospel. That God will give us the words and the wisdom and the courage. Because this is the only hope that people have. This world needs Christ.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy, for the forgiveness that you've given us through the sacrifice of your Son. Father, thank you that somebody somewhere along the line told us about Christ. Father, thank you that the Holy Spirit showed us that we were sinners. And Father, may you do that with those that we know who are unsafe, be it family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. Father, we all know somebody that needs Christ. Lord, I pray that you would use us as instruments to share the gospel with the lost and dying people. Show them their sin. Show them your grace. Show them the forgiveness that's available in Christ. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.